Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. Uh, I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and um, it really is a great thrill for me to see so many of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium this evening. I want to remind you that Audubon's Aviary, The Final Flight, our spectacular exhibition of watercolors done in preparation for John James Audubon's Birds of America, closes on Mother's Day, May 10th, and I want to urge you all to return during regular museum hours to see this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity um, to catch a glimpse of our final flock of Audubon's spectacular work. I also want to encourage you to return during regular museum hours to see Lincoln and the Jews, a special exhibition that tells a fascinating but little-known story of Lincoln's embrace of an advocacy for Jewish Americans, which were a tiny percentage of the population in Lincoln's day that nevertheless was the object of great prejudice and discrimination on the part of many. And please do pick up a brochure on your way out if you're not already a member of the New York Historical Society, we hope you'll join. Your support plays an invaluable role in all of the programs that we do. Tonight, I have the great pleasure of once again introducing our distinguished Lerman Fellow at the New York Historical Society, Andrew Roberts. Excuse me. <clears throat> Andrew Roberts has dazzled us this year with lectures on Napoleon and Churchill, and tonight he will no doubt dazzle us again with leaders in war, Margaret Thatcher. It's thanks to our esteemed trustee and eminent Lincoln scholar, Mr. Lewis E. Lehrman, that we have had these many opportunities to be dazzled by Andrew Roberts. And I want to thank Mr. Lehrman from the bottom of my heart for creating the Distinguished Lehrman Fellow at the New York Historical Society Lecture. Thank you so very much, Lewis. I also want to express great gratitude to Mr. Lehrman for having had the vision some 12 years ago now together with his partner, Richard Gilder, of this institution as New York's great destination for history. Not everyone back then could imagine such a lofty objective for us, but look around this beautiful auditorium, look at the full house, and you will see that indeed, we are New York's great destination for history. So thank you so much, Lou, for the role you've had in our success. I also want to thank and recognize Dr. James Basker, who is president of the Gilder Lerman Institute and a New York Historical Society trustee, and who is in our audience tonight. I don't know where you are, Jim. You're somewhere. There you are. Jim and I both know how critical his role was in this institution's transformation, so thank you so much for that. And I'd like to thank and recognize the chair of the New York Historical Society's Board of Trustees, Pam Schaffler, and thank her for all her hard work and marvelous effort on our behalf. Thank you so much, Pam. <laughs> Finally, I want to recognize uh, other New York Historical Trustees in attendance this evening, Glenn Louie, Rick Reese, Ira Unschuld, and Michael Weisberg, and thank them for all they do on our behalf. Now then, tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. 
Audience members will be invited to approach two standing microphones to my left and to my right, which will be set up in the aisles. We ask that you do this so that everyone in the auditorium, as well as those who listen to our recorded podcasts, can hear you. Following the program, please do join us for a book signing with tonight's speaker, whose books will be available for purchase in our museum store. We are so very pleased to welcome back Andrew Roberts, the Distinguished Lerman Fellow at the New York Historical Society. Andrew Roberts writes for the Sunday Telegraph and reviews history books and biographies for numerous journals. He's a member of many respected boards and committees, is a director of the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation in New York, and in 2012, he was awarded the William Penn Prize, an award that includes former recipients such as President Ulysses S. Grant and Walt Whitman. Andrew Roberts has written 13 critically acclaimed books, including Hitler and Churchill, Secrets of Leadership, which became the basis for a four-part BBC Two history series. Most recently, he wrote Napoleon, A Life, which won the Grand Prix of the Fondation Napoleon, um, and which was awarded to him by the Princess Bonaparte at the British Embassy in Paris. Napoleon, A Life has also won the Los Angeles Times Biography Prize for 2015. And even more recently, I've learned that Napoleon was optioned by Harvey Weinstein for a TV series, and that Andrew was named visiting professor at King's College London. So congratulations for that. As always, before we begin, I'd like to ask that you please make sure that anything that makes a sound like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please join me in welcoming Andrew Roberts to the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honor to be invited to address you again. And thank you very much indeed, uh, Louise, for those kind words. In my previous lectures on Napoleon and Churchill, I hope I've been able to give you some objectivity that comes pursuant to distance in time. I'm afraid that's not possible tonight with my third subject, Margaret Thatcher, both because I vividly recall the events of the Falklands War when I was 19 years old, but also because a long time subsequent to them, I got to know Margaret Thatcher, who I'd always admired, pretty well. We went to each other's houses for lunches and dinners, and she asked me to call her Margaret, which she certainly didn't do for everyone. And uh, she also appointed me to take her place on the Margaret Thatcher Archive Trust. So I hope this lecture will make up in personal insights what I openly admit that it will lack in pure objectivity. Margaret Thatcher didn't do small talk. When you came through the door at a party of hers, her opening remark would be something along the lines of, what do you think of our current spending on NATO? Uh, God knows, by the way, what she'd think about it today. Um, but she used to spend about 5% of GDP uh, on NATO and currently uh, on, on defence spending, and currently Britain is dipping below 2%. The first time I met her properly, she sat me down and explained how to bomb an airfield. Uh, you don't go along it bombing, uh, dropping your bombs um, in case the first one misses, and then they all will, she told me, more in the form of a public announcement than a private discussion. Um, no, you bomb it crossways, like this, crisscross. Uh, and by the way, the same thing goes for railways. <laughs> uh, I've never had to put this knowledge to use. And anyhow, I'm sure uh, in these days of laser and computer-guided missiles, it's all very different. 
but I did catch the faintest cigar whiff of authentic Churchillian leadership in the air that day. One time when she came to dinner with my wife Susan and me on the 25th anniversary of the uh, Falklands War, she was asked by a waiter whether she wanted English or French mustard with her beef wellington. English, of course, she replied, uh, as though um, he'd been suggesting that they hoisted the French tricolour over Buckingham Palace. (laughs) Of course, her ultimate hero was Churchill, just as one of Churchill's heroes was Napoleon. So perhaps there's a case of apostolic succession going on in these, uh, in these lectures. Um, she was 14 years old in that Annus Mirabilis, 1940, when she sat at the radio of her father's grocery store, just above the store, listening to Churchill's speeches during the Blitz and the Battle of Britain. Those years, up to early teenage, are very important in the political makeup of a statesman. In my view, far more important than the late teenage years that biographers tend to concentrate on much more. For it's then when international events first impinge on the consciousness and lessons are consciously or subconsciously learned. Napoleon was 14 when the American War of Independence was won or lost in some cases. Churchill was 11 when General Gordon was killed at Khartoum, and Charles de Gaulle's earliest political memories were of his father raging against les Anglo-Saxons over the Fashoda crisis. Similarly, Margaret Thatcher was 12 when her parents, Alfred and Beatrice Roberts, no relation to me, by the way, uh, but it didn't harm my relationship with her that I bore her maiden name, um, had just taken a young Jewish German-Jewish girl into their home in 1938, just before Kristallnacht. So Margaret was under no illusions about the true nature of fascism. Alderman Roberts, her father, was a Methodist lay preacher who believed it was his community's duty to give practical help to the persecuted of other lands, regardless of race. And in taking that young Jewish refugee from, uh, uh, away from Nazism, it's highly likely that he saved her life. She certainly um, thought so herself and was profoundly grateful to the Thatcher family for the rest of her days. It certainly taught Margaret about the superiority of decisive practical action over mere hand-wringing and vapid moralising. Critics and cynics who claim that Margaret's philosemitism stemmed from political motives, as a member of parliament she sat for the largely Jewish constituency of Finchley North, miss out this crucially formative influence on her. When in April 1982, the fascist junta that ruled Argentina, several members of whom had been um, respectable, had been responsible, sorry, for the disappearance and murder of tens of thousands of Argentinians in the 1970s, very suddenly and without any warning invaded the Falkland Islands at the mouth of the Magellan Straits in the South Atlantic, they failed to take into account the metal of their opponent. No prime minister had taken the country to war, taken Britain to war since Korea. And whereas every British prime minister since Churchill would probably have tried to do a deal with the Argentinians, Margaret Thatcher had the moral courage necessary to see the conflict in stark black and white terms as a matter of duty and national honour about which no compromise was possible. When the previous December, the Foreign Office had suggested that she congratulate the Argentinian junta on taking office, Um, taking power effectively. She replied, British premiers do not send messages on the occasion of military takeovers. 
she was entirely unaffected by what has been termed the policy of the preemptive cringe, which was the default position of successive British governments ever since the humiliation of the Suez Crisis over a quarter of a century earlier, when uh, American pressure forced Britain to bow uh, to the forced nationalisation of the Suez Canal by Egypt. It was the first great victory of the new phenomenon of extreme Arab nationalism over uh, a Western democracy. By the way, uh, how's that worked out for you long term? (laughs) Not everyone saw the Falklands in the stark, almost Manichaean terms that Thatcher did. There were only 1,800 people living there, after all, who led a hard scrabble, mainly agricultural existence in the rain-swept South Atlantic. Indeed, the great Argentine uh, writer Jorge Luis Borges uh, famously likened the struggle to two bald men fighting over a comb. Uh, (laughs) That that would be fair, except if it wasn't for the fact that there there was a matter of deep principle at stake. Crown territory had been invaded and uh, the Queen's subjects had had their liberty Violated. For the Falklands had been a British colony since 1765. Many families living there could trace their British ancestry back nine generations. The United Nations had stated in 1960 that the islanders' self-determination was paramount, and their wishes had been made evident in several referenda in which 99.8% of the islanders voted to remain a British colony. Yet there are some who still today believe that the Falklands should belong to Argentina. Your own uh, uh, Mr. Sean Penn, uh, 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 an actor-philosopher, recently wrote an article in the Guardian newspaper demanding that the United Kingdom renounces her sovereignty over the Falklands. It was an almost surreal piece of writing from which I'd like to to quote two magnificent sentences. Uh, Quote, This is not a cause of leftist flamboyance, nor significantly a centuries-old literary dispute, but rather a modern one that is perhaps unveiled most legitimately through the raconteurism of Patagonian fishermen. Anyone? No. No, no, me neither. Uh, (laughs) But he's clearly not a man who feels any pressing need for a sub-editor. I also do feel, as an historian, that Mr. Penn's article deserves at least a footnote in the long and noble history of Hollywood pretentiousness. (laughs) Yet back in 1982, there were also people in that decision-making body, uh, in in the decision-making bodies of the British state, who were also ready to ignore the unanimous and oft-repeated desire of the islanders to remain British. In the eyes of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, notes one study of the conflict by Max Hastings and Peter Jenkins, British writers, they could, and Max Hastings actually was was present during the Falklands War, uh, on the Falklands, they could not possibly weigh heavily uh, against British policy towards South Africa, uh, sorry, South America, a continent of 240 millions. Because the islands were over 8,000 miles from Britain, but only 950 miles from Argentina, the Foreign Office was prepared to concede sovereignty over them with some kind of leaseback agreement in order for Britain to stay popular with Latin America. But they hadn't reckoned with a Prime Minister amongst whose many sayings was, if you set out to be liked, you would, not, you would be prepared to compromise on anything at any time and you would achieve nothing. In one sense, 
Margaret Thatcher was herself partly responsible for the decision of General Galtieri, the head of the Junta, to invade the Falklands. Defence cuts had led the Ministry of Defence to withdraw the ice patrol vessel HMS Endurance at the end of its 1981-1982 tour at a saving of £2 million a year. Margaret Thatcher had supported the Ministry of Defence in this. It's believed that the Junta saw the withdrawal of endurance as an indication that the British were in the process of climbing down from her international uh, commitments to her colonies. The cost of the war eventually amounted to £6 billion. Uh, Rarely has the truth been more starkly displayed that relatively high defence spending represents good value for money because combat is always far more expensive than deterrence. On Wednesday, the 31st of March, Signals Intelligence showed MI6 that an Argentinian uh, fleet had put to sea and an attack must be expected within 48 hours. In a four-hour meeting in Mrs. Thatcher's room in the House of Commons from 7pm that night with the Permanent Secretary of the Ministry of Defence, Sir Frank Cooper, being summoned from a dinner party to attend... They reviewed the reports and the Joint Intelligence Committee's view, that uh, previous view, that invasion was by no means a certainty. British ambassador, the British ambassador to Washington, Sir Nicholas Henderson, took the intelligence reports to uh, President Reagan's chief of staff, Alexander Haig, who asked his CIA liaison officer, why have I not been told of this? At 9pm Greenwich Mean Time, Mrs Thatcher telegraphed President Reagan to ask him to warn General Galtieri off British sovereign territory, but Galtieri refused to take Reagan's call. Most of the seven men in the Prime Minister's room at the House of Commons during that meeting counselled caution. One hesitates to generalise about matters to do with gender, uh, especially with one's wife in the room, Um, but... Uh, As an historian, it's hard not to sympathise, at least in part, with the thrust of Rudyard Kipling's poem about how the female of the species is deadlier than the male. Uh, Queen Boadicea, Queen Elizabeth I, Catherine de' Medici, Catherine the Great, um, Empress Maria Theresa, Golda Meir, Indira Gandhi, Margaret Thatcher, the witness of history is virtually uniform in the willingness of female decision-makers to go to war once they've decided the cause is just. For all that the United Nations has stated that more women should be in decision-making roles, and I'm told that you yourselves will be considering a woman for a very significant decision-making role uh, soon, the desire for a quieter life should not be foremost among them. Um, There are many excellent reasons to promote female equality of opportunity in politics, but the one that's often cited, the avoidance of conflict as though wars could be lessened by more estrogen in international relations and less testosterone, is simply not borne out by historical experience. At that meeting of those seven men in the Prime Minister's room, the Foreign Office representatives said that Mrs Thatcher should give the Argentinians no excuse by being provocative. I have no department here, and I'm jolly well realising that I need a department, Thatcher said during the coming conflict. I have to rely on third-hand hearsay, and I don't like it. She had an inherent distaste for governmental institutions such as the Foreign Office, believing that they ossified thought, protected privilege, and removed incentive. At that meeting, too, the Defence Secretary, Sir John Knott, pointed out all the logistical difficulties of carrying out an operation 8,000 miles away from the home base. 
once sent, it was pointed out, any task force would be politically very hard to recall. It would involve putting almost all of Britain's naval forces in one basket, would cost a fortune during a recession, would be unpopular internationally, could strain relations with the United States, whose ambassador to the United Nations, Jean Kirkpatrick, was known to favour the Argentinians. And there was also the possibility of defeat at the hands of of Argentina's large surface fleet, four hunter-killer submarines and 200 warplanes. At that crucial meeting, only Mrs Thatcher was instinctively averse to taking a cautious response. Uh, But then reinforcements arrived in the sharp, spare, no-nonsense form of the first sea lord and chief of the Navy staff, Admiral Sir Henry Leach who has been described as very much an admiral's admiral. The Royal Navy has a long tradition of straight-talking admiral's admirals. Uh, One might instance Earl St. Vincent, who famously said during the Napoleonic Wars, I do not say the French cannot come, I only say they cannot come by sea. (laughs) (laughs) Or uh, Admiral Lord Cunningham during World War II, who, when told that it would be very costly to evacuate the British Army from Crete, replied... It takes the Navy three years to build a ship. It will take 300 years to build a new tradition. The evacuation will continue. Admiral Leach um, had arrived by helicopter from Portsmouth, where he had been carrying out an official engagement, and so he was in full-dress admiral's uniform when he turned up to that meeting in the House of Commons. And his arrival completely changed the tenor of the meeting. Thatcher asked him if he could mobilise a task force to liberate the Falklands if they were invaded. Leach said he could, and by the weekend. This was on a Wednesday night. Uh, And he added that the Navy not only could, but should respond to an invasion. A senior Ministry of Defence official later said, every one of Leach's commanders would have been shot if those ships had not been ready to sail by the weekend. Leach knew that not just the Falklands were at stake. For what else was at stake was the Royal Navy's reputation, the survival of the Thatcher ministry, and at a much deeper level, the honour of Great Britain. This was something that was instinctively grasped by Margaret Thatcher, who, entirely without approval from either Parliament or the Cabinet, ordered Leach that the task force is to be made ready and sailed, which it was by that Sunday. In the meantime, President Reagan spoke to Galtieri for an hour, impressing on him Mrs. Thatcher's resolve to resist any invasion. He offered his vice uh, vice president, George um, H.W. Bush, as a mediator, but that was refused by the Argentinians. At dawn on Friday, the 2nd of April, the Argentinians landed and imprisoned the populations of Port Stanley and other places. The day before, the governor, Rex Hunt, uh, governor of the Falklands, Rex Hunt, a charming man, uh, by the way, Um, he'd summoned the two British officers, two majors who were in charge of 80 Royal Marines, the only soldiers on the island, and told them, it looks as if the buggers mean it. (laughs) The uh, British cabinet went into emergency session. Mrs Thatcher now needed total support from a cabinet that, over other issues, had all too often withheld it from her. So she went around the cabinet table, asking for the views of each minister in turn, rather than allowing them to give a a collective view together. They said um, that the task force should not be sent if it was going to be turned around again in mid-ocean. No cabinet minister thought that the outcome would be war. Everyone assumed it would be dealt with diplomatically or that the Argentinians would back down. As the deputy prime minister, Willie Whitelaw, said, if the fleet was stood down, the government would have to resign. The House of Commons 
had not sat on a Saturday since the Suez Crisis, but it was recalled for Saturday the 3rd of April, the day after the invasion, when Mrs Thatcher announced a large task force will sail as soon as preparations are complete and that her government's object was to see the islands return to British administration. During that debate, the Conservative MP Enoch Powell referred to the soubriquet Iron Lady that the Russians had bestowed on her. It was meant in a negative sense. Needless to say, she grasped it and loved it. Um, And he said that in the coming weeks, Thatcher herself, the House of Commons, and the rest of the world would learn of what metal she is made. On Monday the 5th of April, Lord Carrington, the Foreign Minister and uh, Foreign Secretary, and two other Foreign Ministers, Humphrey Atkins and Richard Luce, resigned under the principle of collective responsibility, even though Atkins and Luce had not been responsible in any way for Argentinian policy. Thatcher appointed the Liberal Tory MP Francis Pym in Carrington's place and pretty much instantly regretted it. Uh, she also set up a small war cabinet consisting of herself, Whitelaw, Pym, Knott, and Cecil Parkinson, the chairman of the Tory party, uh, the last mentioned to, in order to give her a majority against the Liberal Tories, then known as the Wets in British public school speak, uh, in case things turned difficult. In the United Nations Security Council, Britain was in a bind. Her ambassador, Sir Anthony Parsons, put forward Resolution 502, demanding the immediate withdrawal of Argentine forces. But although he could count on the support of the United States, France, Ireland, and Japan, the communist bloc of China, Russia, and Poland could be relied upon to vote against. The Latin countries, Spain and Panama, openly supported Argentina. That meant that Parsons needed to win over all five of the other members, Jordan, Togo, Zaire, Uganda, and Guyana, in order to win the two-thirds majority necessary, and he only had 48 hours in which to do it. And Parsons succeeded. He managed um, to uh, persuade all five, although it took uh, France putting pressure on Togo, and uh, Mrs. Thatcher phoned up King Hussein of Jordan, who also um, supported Britain. He put the, uh, Parsons put the betting at 6-4 to four against the Russians um, using the veto, but uh, despite severe Argentinian pressure over grain sales, they didn't, probably not wanting to be seen siding with an authoritarian right-wing regime. Mrs. Thatcher, although no fa- fan of the United Nations, could henceforth state that all the Argentinians need to do is to honour United Nations Security Council Resolution 502. Al Haig did his best on behalf of peace with shuttle diplomacy, but found that the Argentinians would not permit any element of self-determination for the islanders and refused to have the Argentine flag hauled down there under any circumstances. In his meetings with Haig, Admiral Jorge Anaya of the Junta said that Britain had no stomach for a fight, that democracies could not sustain casualties, and that the task force could not fight once winter came to the South Atlantic. In the last point, he might have well have been right. Mrs. Thatcher saw no possibility of a peaceful solution in these days, and the task force sailed south. Meanwhile, the chiefs of staff were warning the cabinet of possibly high losses and casualties, and even a possible 50% attrition rate in Harrier jump jets. Fortunately, both Francis Pym and Willie Whitelaw had both won military crosses in the Second World War, and they were able to remind the rest of the war cabinet that part of the duty of chiefs of staff was to be excessively gloomy uh, to politicians before battle was joined. 
On the 25th of April, the nearby islands of South Georgia, which had also been invaded by Argentina, were liberated without loss by 75 SAS, um, SBS and Royal Marines. It required a direct attack, and afterwards a bewildered Argentine officer complained to the SAS commander, you've just walked through my minefield. In London, Mrs. Thatcher came out of number 10 Downing Street, and to the waiting pressmen, keen to ask questions, she merely said, rejoice, rejoice. Yet, even at that crucial stage, not all Britons were solidly behind the use of force to liberate the Falklands. The leading Labour Party politician, Tony Benn, and the Labour Party chairman campaigned against it, and 33 Labour MPs voted against it in Parliament. The Trades Union Congress called on the government not to engage in military action. The three senior figures in the Liberal Party stayed noticeably silent. The BBC featured a programme on Tories opposed to military action. A straw poll estimated that a majority of senior civil servants also opposed sending the task force including those in the Treasury, Foreign Office and Cabinet Office. Most dangerously, Francis Pym was putting forward dovish views in the War Cabinet while sounding hawkish in Parliament. Margaret Thatcher took exquisite revenge on one occasion by asking him to defend to the full Cabinet a controversial decision um, to which he had been adamantly opposed in the War Cabinet. On the afternoon of the 1st of May, the commander of the nuclear submarine HMS Conqueror reported that he had sighted the 12,240-ton cruiser General Belgrano, um, escorted by two Exocet armed destroyers, zigzagging in and out of the 200 nautical mile total exclusion zone that the British had established around the Falklands. She was providing aircraft direction for the Argentinian Air Force, and on the morning of the 2nd of May, Admiral Sir Terence Lewin, the Chief of the Defence Staff, went to the War Cabinet meeting at the Prime Minister's country house of Chequers to seek permission for the Admiralty's decision that she needed to be sunk at once, even though at the time she was 40 miles southwest of the zone. There was a full discussion, and Mrs Thatcher gave the order, with no minister dissenting. Conqueror fired two Mark VIII torpedoes from 2,000 yards at 3 p.m., and sank the Belgrano with the loss of 323 lives. It was the first major loss of life of the war and is still controversial today, but it demonstrated that the British were not bluffing and that, in the words of Hastings and Jenkins, the seizure of the Falklands would be met by whatever level of force proved necessary to repossess them. Later in the war, there were British losses, such as the sinking of the Type 42 destroyer HMS Sheffield by an Exocet launched from the air on the 4th of May, the first Royal Navy vessel sunk in action since World War II. Twenty crew members were killed. As the rest were waiting to be rescued from the burning, sinking ship after the attack, Sub-Lieutenant Carrington Wood led the crew in singing the Monty Python song, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, talking about traditions of the Royal Navy. (laughs) On uh, the 25th of May, Argentina's National Day, tremendously brave Argentine pilots under heavy fire also sank HMS Coventry with a further loss of 20 lives and 29 wounded. These attacks left Margaret Thatcher visibly pained and desolate, and on each occasion she retreated to her upstairs room at number 10 and personally wrote in longhand to the parents of the servicemen killed. In all, she had to write 253 such letters. Uh, The Falklands marked her soul and mine, her husband, Dennis, 
wonderful man uh, was to say. Yet, for all the international, national, emotional, and media pressure on her, Mrs. Thatcher resolutely stuck to the cause of liberating the island. She also refused to add to the pressure on the commander on the spot, Lieutenant General Sir Julian Thompson, to break out early from the beachhead that he had established in San Carlos Bay. On the 25th of May, by which time five ships had been sunk, she told a group of Tory women that there can be no question of pressing the force commander to move forward prematurely. When two days later, Thatcher, um, sorry, Thompson did break out uh, towards Port Stanley and Goose Green, she was relieved to be able to announce the fact to the House of Commons. The pressure didn't loosen up, however. Mrs. Thatcher is under great pressure to get Port Stanley, a staff officer at the command unit at Northwood, wrote in his diary at the time. Every day that Stanley is not taken is another country lost to world opinion. We can't risk losing another ship or the cabinet may not be able to resist pressure for a ceasefire. There were several important battles to come, including the Battle of Goose Green and the night attack up Mount Tambledown, uh, the latter of which has been described as the toughest battle of the campaign. I'm very proud to say that uh, my best friend from prep school, Charlie Page, then a subaltern, now a brigadier, was mentioned in dispatches after commanding his Scots Guards platoon in that battle. These and other such victories in the field led to the success that Margaret Thatcher and Admiral Leach had had the confidence to predict all those nerve-wracking weeks earlier. Away from the actual field of battle during those weeks, the United States was quietly providing Britain with invaluable logistical, weaponry, intelligence, and satellite support, which because of its sensitive nature had to be kept secret at the time. In particular, the US Defense Secretary Caspar Weinberger felt, as he put it at the time, that we should, without any question, help the British to the utmost of our ability. I therefore passed the word to the Department of Defense that all existing requests from the United Kingdom for military equipment were to be honored at once, and that if the British made any further requests for any other equipment or other types of support, short of our actual participation in their military action, those requests should also be granted and honored immediately. I know how vital speed would be for the extraordinarily difficult operation they were undertaking. The United States provided extra fuel to support the British air supply effort on Ascension Island, despite the press pointing out how it technically broke the Americans' official line of impartiality in the conflict. By 19th of April, presidential authority had been gained to release six Stinger surface-to-air missile launchers equipped with 12 missiles to British forces, plus night goggles. The U.S. Secretary for the Navy, John F. Lehman, also made it clear he would speed up the supply of any equipment that was not coming through fast enough. He even indicated he'd be prepared to move one of the carrier battle groups, then in the Caribbean, to the South Atlantic, and the possible transfer of a U.S. aircraft carrier was also discussed. In the month of May alone, Britain procured some 120,000 uh, sorry, $120 million worth of U.S. material, often at 24 hours' notice. This included 4,700 tonnes of airstrip matting for Port Stanley, Shrike missiles for use by the Vulcans, um, helicopter engines, submarine detection devices for use on seeking hel helicopters, and a large amount of ammunition. From the start of the conflict, concludes its official historian, Sir Lawrence Friedman, Caspar Weinberger had supported the British and paid scant attention to the delicate line of impartiality along which the Secretary of State Alexander Haig trod. 
Uh, and ladies and gentlemen, we in Britain are still profoundly grateful for this unstinting, invaluable, practical aid given in our hour of greatest need by great Americans such as John Lehman and the late Caspar Weinberger. Makes up for what happened at Suez. <laughs> On uh, Monday the 14th of June at 10.15 p.m., the Prime Minister rose from her seat in the House of Commons to say, our forces reached the outskirts of Port Stanley. Large numbers of Argentine soldiers threw down their weapons. They are reported to be flying white flags over Port Stanley. The House of Commons erupted with relief and joy. Uh, Enoch Powell, who in the House of Commons debate at the start of the conflict had said that um, it would show what metal the Iron Lady was made of, told the House of Commons on that occasion, it shows that the substance under test consists of ferrous metal of the highest quality. Uh, it is of exceptional tensile strength, resistance to wear and tear, and may be used with advantage for all national purposes. <laughs> when she returned home to Downing Street that night, exhausted but elated, Margaret Thatcher was kept awake by the crowds outside her door singing Rule Britannia throughout the night. As the fleet returned to Portsmouth, over the following weeks, vast crowds turned up to welcome home every ship as towns and villages competed to do honour to their local servicemen and women. Today we meet in the aftermath of the Falklands battle, she said in a speech on the 3rd of July. Our country has won a great victory and we're entitled to be proud. This nation had the resolution to do what it knew had to be done, to do what it knew was right. We fought to show that aggression does not pay and that the robber cannot be allowed to get away with his swag. We fought for our own people and for our own sovereign territory. When we started out, there were waverers and the faint hearts, the people who thought we could no longer do the great things which we once did. Those who believed that our decline was irreversible, that we could never again be what we were. There were those who would not admit it, people who would have strenuously denied the suggestion but in their heart of hearts, they too had secret fears that Britain was no longer the nation that had built an empire and ruled a quarter of the world. Well, they were wrong. The lesson of the Falklands, she said, is that Britain has not changed and that this nation still has those sterling qualities which shine through our history. This generation can match their forefathers and grandfathers in ability, in courage and in resolution. Ladies and gentlemen, it was true. And much of the credit for that must be put down to the ability, the courage, and the resolution, and the sheer leadership qualities of the most remarkable Englishman, uh, sorry, the most remarkable Englishwoman <laughs> since Queen Elizabeth I, namely Margaret Thatcher herself. Thank you very much indeed. <clears throat> Um, well, there's time for questions, about a uh, quarter of an hour or so for questions and answers. I look forward to getting into an extremely detailed historical debate over the sovereignty of the Falkland Islands going back to 1519 uh, with any Argentinians who are present in the audience tonight. Um, but um, until then, sir. <laughs> Thank you for a wonderful talk. What was Galtieri's thinking. Uh, why did he provoke that incident? Did he think the British wouldn't react and it was a, a walkover for them? Yes, good question. Um, they, he did think it was going to be a walkover for them. He didn't think that, um, first of all, he didn't think that the task force would be sent. 
uh, that they weren't that, that we weren't going to go eight thousand miles in order to um, in order to liberate the islands uh, at a time of defence cuts and and recession. Um, he deeply uh, misunderstood the the nature of of the prime minister clearly, um, and we know that also from the memoirs of some of the people who were. In, in the junta. They, they didn't think that she was the kind of person she was. Um, and they also felt that if they uh, managed to capture the uh, Falklands right at the beginning, it would be very difficult for a land attack to dislodge them because that had to be uh, defended, that, that had to be supported um, throughout this coming winter. They believed that they were going to be able to hold on until the winter. And winters down in the South Atlantic are absolutely um, uh, desperate. And uh, and so they were playing for time in that sense as well. I mean, who knows what would have happened if they'd attacked in uh, in the late um, fall rather than, um, rather than in the spring. Thank you. Sir. Yes, sir. The uh, American uh, president is the commander-in-chief constitutionally. Uh, the British prime minister, it's not as I, as I understand it, although Churchill apparently thought he was, during World War II. Now, he, Churchill had a war cabinet, as did you mention, uh, Margaret Thatcher. How does how does this supposed to work? Who is in command of the military during war? Well, the Queen, of course, is the uh, is the uh, <laughs> ultimately uh, in command of the British Armed Forces, and so um, there is political uh, power over them. Um, the War Cabinet did therefore take all um, all ultimate uh, decisions. Uh, but it was constantly advised by the chiefs of staff. So it was precisely the same uh, constitutional setup as you had in the Second World War with uh, Winston Churchill. The only difference being that Winston Churchill was also the Minister of Defence, um, whereas Margaret Thatcher uh, wasn't and Sir John not was. Uh, but that really didn't matter because she was also uh, chairing the war cabinet. So they had a collegiate system. They didn't, in fact, have to take any votes on anything because they all agreed on the key um, decisions, such as the sinking of the General Belgrano, of course. Um, but she made sure that she was in a majority um, in the cabinet. She, she and uh, Knott and Parkinson made up three and the two wets, um, Pym and Whitelaw, made up the other two. Thank By you. wets, I mean political wets, of course. These people were, you know, they were, were um, men who had won the military cross in the Second World War. They were in no sense uh, actual, you know, per personally wet at all. I knew them both, and they were very, very fine men. Uh, thank you for a great talk about a great woman. As a historian, have you thought about who in this modern area, an era, in leadership or a potential leader could have the courage of a Margaret Thatcher? Um, I, I think the situation often makes the person. Um, it, it, and, uh, and if you, I, I'm certain that if, um, if the Argentinians were to invade the Falklands today, uh, David Cameron would do everything in his power to fling them off. I mean, obviously, he has the, um, the precedent of Margaret Thatcher to look back to. Unfortunately, what he doesn't have is the aircraft carriers. 
Um, and uh, we, we, we now don't have any aircraft carriers until the year 2020. So um, although we have put, because the Argentinians have been saber-rattling down there and they've been causing a lot of trouble with our oil exploration and indeed your American oil exploration down there as well, um, we've had to put, um, put more um, uh, missiles into uh, the Falklands just in case they, they tried it on again. But... Um, the uh, the international situation is is obviously very different, but um, no, I'm I'm not about to pretend that there are a whole raft of Margaret Thatchers um, in the uh, uh, in the leadership positions in the West at the moment, and um, and that's a great shame in my view. Madam, hi, it was wonderful to listen to. Um, in December of two thousand and nine, I was lucky enough to be on a cruise that included going out to the Falklands and much of the coast of Argentina. And the uh, locals in uh, Port Stanley told us that one of the reasons that Argentina attacked was because his military junta, whatever, was sort of losing in favor. Um, and that's one of the main reasons why Maggie decided to defend. It was kind of her situation as well, which I think you alluded to. Yes, um, the uh, the junta obviously thought that it was going to be tremendously politically popular um, in um, in Argentina if they managed to pull it off, um, and they they had lots of problems of their own as well with a uh, with a, a particularly economic problems, and um, they were becoming unpopular, and it was a sort of very um, uh, well one would say Bonapartist kind of um, kind of uh, um, thing to attempt. But um, but I don't think that has any um, influence on on Margaret Thatcher. I don't think in the back of Margaret Thatcher's mind she thought that she would be bringing down the Argentine government if uh, if she were successful. She very much saw it in, as I mentioned, uh, the black and white constitutional terms. Uh, hello, Mr. Mr. Roberts. My name is Xavier Gomez. I'm a huge fan. Um, I wanted to ask you, well, in this case... Um, Could you hold that up again? Because there are some people over there that <laughs> might not have uh, seen it. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a great book, one of my favorites. Okay. Uh, huge Napoleon By the way, ladies and gentlemen, I've never met this man before. <laughs> that, that's true. That is true. Um, uh, Mr. Roberts, my question is, um, the strategic situation was that, well, it was a um, political success and the military success because uh, the Argentinians uh, were not really organized and didn't, they didn't have so much, such, uh, so much resolution. But had they proven to be a, um, a better organized army, I, I mean, had, had they actually caused more casualties in the, in the British uh, uh, military command, uh, how much uh, do you think uh, was the political um, backing for the, the British at the time? I mean, if, uh, if the British forces started to take on more and more casualties, and the war had actually prolonged for, uh, for many more months or maybe years, uh, how much do you think uh, the, the Thatcher government could have taken before? That's a very good question. That's a very good question. Uh, as I mentioned, 253 um, British servicemen were killed. But what you're saying is uh, if over 1,000, for example, had, uh, had, had died, whether or not that would have altered the, um, the uh, British resolution. My answer to that is, and my, very much my feeling about that um, period politically, where um, she did have a majority in the House of Commons, but only a majority of 43, and an awful lot of people who were uh, on the Conservative side who, um, who hated her. 
um, is that um, sustained losses over a long period of time would undoubtedly have um, changed the mood of the House of Commons. And um, so, yes, if uh, if one of the capital ships had been sunk, um, let alone the aircraft carriers, you know, um, then then all bets are off. She would have continued to have um, to have fought the uh, the war, but she could well have been brought down by her own side, which of course is eventually what did happen to her in conditions of peace in November 1990 when she was betrayed by a cabal of traitors. <laughs> Madam, at the top there. Just shout. Thank you very badly. Thank you very much for a very useful talk. You mentioned that Margaret I'm not sure that it has, in fact. I think that's a very good question. But um, no, I don't think that when Tony Blair being the classic example... Um, when he decided to uh, to fight in in Sierra Leone and and Bosnia and uh, and obviously Iraq and Afghanistan, I don't think he was looking to to the Falklands as a uh, as a as a precedent for the simple reason, of course, that um, uh, in none of those places were there any British um, uh, British um, subjects who were who were um, being oppressed. Um, so it um, it is in that sense very much to be seen, I think, as one of the last colonial wars, um, rather than the first group of of, um, of modern um, modern and recent wars. That's the way I, I, I see it, and I think most historians do as well. Good question, sir. Um, thank you for a wonderful talk about a fascinating person. Um, I'm going to ask you to engage in a in a sort of a what if that probably is unanswerable on some level, but um, had the Argentine fleet not sailed, would Margaret Thatcher be Margaret Thatcher? Ah, <laughs> um, I think she would do, yes. Uh, she di- I don't think, uh, assuming she'd won the 1983 general election, of course, and the victory in the Falklands um, did enormously help her victory in the um, 1983 general election, which she could have lost because there were some three million unemployed. Um, when one thinks of the economic policies that uh, she, unbelievably radical reforms that she put into, um, uh, she'd done things that were, um, and this was before the miners' strike, of course, but nonetheless, uh, still, industrial relations were, um, were incredibly um, aggressive in, uh, in Britain in the early 1980s. Uh, she had three million unemployed. Um, she had a party, uh, half of which were, uh, were plotting against her. Um, so we can't assume that, um, that she'd have won that, uh, won that election. When you think she cut um, the top rate of income tax from 83% to 40%, um, that was popular with the people who were paying the top rate of income tax, but it was, uh, it was very unpopular on the left. Um, you know, she. Uh, there's there's nothing to say that she'd have survived. So that's a very good what if. I believe in what ifs. I once wrote a what if a book about what ifs. Actually, it's a it's a great. It strikes me that um, unless you do consider what the alternatives were, you can't fully appreciate what genuinely um, did happen. Thank you. Sorry. 
Fantastic. That's uh, thank you very much for all those questions. I, I'm just going to say no, 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 no. I'm just going to tell you that on the um, uh, and it's a great honour that so many people are here. Um, thank you for coming. Uh, on the 27th of October, I'm going to be talking about the war leadership of Adolf Hitler. Uh, so um, in that sense, there isn't a apostolic succession. <laughs> thank you again. Good evening, everyone, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm Alex Castle. I'm the manager of public programs here, and I just want to remind you that the books are for sale. We have copies of Andrew Roberts' books in the museum store on our 77th Street side, and he'll be signing books on our Central Park West side uh, by the carriage. So thank you all so much for joining us.